The scripture for today's sermon is Genesis 3, 1 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. Now the sermon, the serpent, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the that tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Thank you, Holly. Good morning, guys. How are we? Good. It's, uh, it's great to be with you guys today. My name is Josh Curry. If we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors. And uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to take a one-week break from going through Mark, and we're going to talk about something that's coming up in the life of our church. Over the course of about the last five years, I've noticed something in pastoral ministry that's really important. What I've noticed is the rate of deformation among the people of God. The rate at which we get led away from Jesus, the pace of decay or entropy, if you will, has exponentially increased in our cultural moment. And what I've started to see is that people that are unintentional, people that are not engaging in practices of formation but claim to be followers of Jesus are not just gradually drifting away from Christian character and Christian belief and Christian practice, but they're actually rapidly moving away from historic Christianity. And over the course of the last three years, the pastors of our church have been prayerfully studying and thinking and having conversations and engaging ideas to try to name what are the core forces of deformation that we're up against. What are the beliefs and what are the ideas, what are the narratives, what are the stories that are leading so many people away from Jesus? And over the course of the last few years with a group of pastors in our church and thinkers collaborating together with a lot of prayerfulness and seeking Jesus, uh, we believe that we've been able to name sort of five core forces of deformation. And what we've decided to do over the next couple of years is instead of hand-wringing and freaking out as if our moment was the most difficult in the 2,000-year history of the church, because it's not, and instead of just banging the drum and talking about how evil and destructive these five forces are and being reactive and anxious, what we've decided to do is that we're just going to take, we're going to take blocks in the life of our church, moments in our church calendar, and we're going to talk about the beautiful vision of God for formation. 
We're going to look at his answer to those five forces, and we're going to look at God's dream of what it looks like to be strangers and aliens, sojourners and exiles in the midst of the world. And so coming up in a couple of months, we're going to be in our community groups really leaning into the topic of God's vision for divine authority. What does it mean? What does it mean that God's authority is beautiful? that it's for your good. In the midst of a culture where increasingly we're told that the highest form of authority is self, in a culture that's increasingly atomized, disconnected from one another, in a culture that's increasingly distrustful of all institutions, what would it look like if Christians, if the people of God actually believed not just in our heads, but in our guts, in our affections, in the depth of our soul, That God's yes to us is a yes to life. And God's no to us when he gives us a no is a no to death. What would it look like to have our lives shaped around the idea that God's, God's authority is not a withholding authority or a begrudging authority, but that it's a generous authority. That he's benevolent. That when God instructs and when he guides and when he leads and when Jesus calls us to obey his word... He's doing so for our good and for our flourishing. And that the way of Jesus, which is a way of self-denial, is actually a more beautiful way to live out what it is to be human than the way of self as king, self as God, self as ruler. And so today what I wanted to do is I just wanted to take a couple of minutes and I wanted to set you up for that conversation. Before we get into groups and start processing this and before we give you guys some guides to think through how you can pray around the topic of counterformation, I just wanted to take a little bit of time and go to Genesis chapter 3 and talk about the great rebellion. I want to talk about how deeply we're shaped by mistrust of God's authority. And so I'm going to pray for you, you guys pray for me, and then we're going to dive in Genesis chapter 3 and do some work. Heavenly Father, I want to name and confess that after over 20 years of seeing your faithfulness, after over 20 years of seeing you meet me and shape me and answer prayers and deliver me, after over 20 years of seeing how deeply your love is manifested in the giving of your son, I still struggle to trust you. I still have a hard time believing that you have my ultimate good in mind. And I want to name that, Father, and I want to ask that you would meet me and my friends in the depth of our being, not just our heads, but in our hearts. And that you would shape us around the truth that you are good, that you're trustworthy, that your will for people, for your people in particular, but for all people, is that we might taste of the goodness of your rule, that you're not a dictator. You're not insecure. You're not a bad father. You're actually good. And that when you tell us no, you tell us no because you love us. So I pray today as we open your word that you would meet us and shape us and help us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, this week I was thinking about my defiant disorder. Um, I am pretty rebellious to the core. And that shows up in really funny ways sometimes. About maybe, oh, 12, 13 years ago, my son got really sick. And we spent about 30 days at uh, Integris's 
pediatric ICU. It was terrifying. It was wild. Uh, the doctors thought our son was going to die, and God was really gracious and merciful. He healed him. But what started to happen is towards the end of our hospital stay, when my son started getting better, he knew that he had a unique opportunity to cash in mom and dad's anxiety and, and get a good benefit from it. And so one of my buddies who was my boxing coach at the time, he was coming up to visit my son and to check on him. And he asked my son the question that Elijah was waiting to be asked. And that was, what do you want to get as a present when you get out of the hospital? <laughs> and my son, man, he knew this was his moment. It was, it was a carpe diem moment. He seized the day and he said, I want a go-kart. Now, keep in mind, he was five at the time. But dude, dude asked for a go-kart, and my buddy who was the boxing coach, who loved my son like crazy and was country to the core, he goes to a swap meet, and he finds this bootleg go-kart that was fast, fast and did not have functional brakes. And so we get out of the hospital, and we try to set my son up on this go-kart, and I'm like, he, he's going to end up back in ICU if I don't do something to restrain the force and power of the go-kart. And I'm not mechanical. I don't know how to set up a governor. And so literally what I did is I tied about a 10-foot rope to the go-kart. I tied the other end of the rope to my waist, and I would be the anchor. I would like, it was like plyometrics. Like I'm just trying to anchor dude so he doesn't careen off the road and die. And so we needed space for, for this experiment. And so we went, to, we went to the parking lot of Shepherd Mall, right? <laughs> the, the great metropolis of Shepherd Mall. I don't even know what Shepherd Mall is anymore. It's not really a mall. It's not really an office complex. No one understands it. Um, but it's by my house, and it has this huge parking lot, big open parking lot. Nobody's out there. And I'm like, that's the perfect place for me to be his anchor and to help him ride his go-kart. And so we're having fun. Like, I'm getting a quad workout. He's having a blast. Nobody's getting killed. And then all of a sudden, mall security shows up. Why you need mall security at Shepherd Mall, I don't know. But the mall security guy shows up, and this was like not just a nice conversation about private property or maybe you should leave. This guy is going to flex on me in front of my son with all of his might. He comes in hot, like, how dare you ride a go-kart here? And then instantly, my defiant disorder gets triggered, and I, I start being a total jerk in front of my son. I'm like, hey, what are you going to do, shine your flashlight at me? <laughs> like, are, are you going to hit me with your big thing of keys? Like, and I start being a jerk, and then he escalates, and before long, I'm yelling as a pastor of a church, I'm... <laughs> I'm yelling at a poor security guard in the parking lot of Shepherd Ball in front of my five-year-old son. This is not my brightest moment. Okay, and I tell you that story because that's not the first, only, or last time that my response to what I feel like is an overreach of authority or bureaucracy has stirred in me anger and rebellion. And I think if you would just pause for a second, like it's not just the abuse of authority that makes us reactive. It's not just bad authority. It's all authority. <laughs> and I think there's this thing inside of us, there's this thing inside of us where we want to blow it up. And I think post-1960s, our culture has accelerated in its view of all authority being suspicious, all authority being bad. And, and by the way, we have to acknowledge that all authority is mixed with sin. 
all authority does fall short, and even the authority that's represented in this room is moms and dads and bosses and teachers, even when you're trying to exercise authority in worthy ways for the benefit of others, we always get it wrong, don't we? And so our relationship with authority is fraught. And a conversation about Christians and authority can't start with institutions. It can't start with the government. It can't even start with parents. A conversation about our relationship with authority has to start with God. And to have a conversation about God's authority really requires that we go back to the very beginning when we're introduced to his authority in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So I want to show you two things quickly, camp on the third, and then the fourth thing we're going to take time to unpack. Uh, Here we go. Number one, I want you to see God's authority in the beginning. And God's authority shows up in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, with two dynamics that are both important. First, we see that God has authority by nature of his being. I don't want to get overly philosophical here, but here's what we see. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that one statement describing God being outside of creation, not enmeshed with creation, God who exists before all things, we're introduced to an idea that's going to get fleshed out in the rest of Scripture. This is where we get all the great omni-words of theology. In this one verse, we get the hint, the whisper of what's going to be unfolding for the rest of the Bible, and that's that God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful, that he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, that he's omniscient, all-knowing, and that he's immutable, that he never changes. In short, here's what we see at the beginning. Though all the details of those words aren't there, we see that there is no other God. He is before the beginning, and he is not his creation. By the very nature of his being, he has the authority as God to exercise authority. This leads to the second thing. We see that he has authority also by nature of his action. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here's what we see here. He is creator, not creation. He is initiator, not reactor. He is author, not character. He is the potter, not the clay. And we, in turn, are creature, not creator. We are character, not author. We are the clay, not the potter. And I want you to stop there for just a second because those two things in themselves, that God has authority by nature of his being as God and God has authority by nature of his action as creator, those things alone, if we didn't have the rest of the Bible, would not necessarily lead us to trust and delight. Those two things alone could, in fact, be really bad news. Because if the God who is the authoritative God, the one God, is solitary, then that's kind of scary. If he's eternally existed in loneliness or in darkness or in a form of selfish isolation, that's scary when that God creates all things and has authority over all things. Or think about this. Like what if his nature was best described as angry? That would be scary. What if, what if that God who has authority by nature of his being and nature of his action, what if he is just defined by cold reason? All those things could lead us to seeing a universe that's either an experiment where he makes us to just see what happens, or maybe the creation of humanity, maybe the creation of all things is God creating a police state like North Korea. Those two things alone are insufficient to lead to joy and trust. But there's a third thing, and this is what we see 
all over the creation account that his authority is benevolent. There's this refrain in Genesis chapter 1. God creates a component of creation, then he reflects, and the refrain, the poetic, the pro, the poetic verse is, and it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It's the repeated refrain. And then we get to chapter 2, and Moses starts to unpack for us more details of the creation of man and woman. And we start to see in the creation of man and woman just how good God's authority is. Let me give you just a few details. We don't have time to read it all. Uh, But first of all, he shares his image with them. He shares his image. He gives them dignity. His creation is beautiful and valuable and good, but man and woman are the crown of his creation. He... He endues upon them value and worth. We see that he shares his breath. He shares his breath. He gives them of his presence. He even delegates his authority. He makes them regents of the earth. He calls them to have dominion over creation. And then he gives them communion. The relational God who's eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in himself is community. He gives them the capacity for relationality and communion with God and with each other. And then he gives them mission and purpose. Um, This is really important to note that there was work and calling before the fall. That he calls them to steward creation, to expand the garden, to multiply and subdue the earth. That's not a a domineering dominion. That's the dominion of, of caretakers, establishing beauty, And then he just showers on them unbelievable gifts. He gives them creation as a gift, food and drink. He gives them pleasure and joy and beauty. And in the midst of all that, what we see is that his authority that is benevolent is exercised in the context of his relationship. He doesn't just give them laws of nature or conscience or abstract principles, but he speaks to them. He's with them. And in the midst of all that, what we see is that his love, his truth, his wisdom, and his goodness are all expressed, even in the beginning, in his rule. Friends, God gives them a world of yeses, and he gives them one no. What this means is simply this, that God is God, God is creator, man is man, man is creature, God has authority over all things, and God's authority is extended to his creation for its good. And his authority isn't contrary to his nature, but it's congruent with his nature. Therefore, listen, when God give them all the yeses in their imagination and one no, his yes was a yes to life and his no was a no to death. The closest approximation for the authority of God in the beginning is not the authority of a CEO or the authority of a president. It's the authority of a loving parent. It's authority expressed for their flourishing and for the good of creation. Now, we have to talk about where it breaks. This leads to the Great Rebellion. I want you to see a few things about the Great Rebellion. Take your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. The first thing is that there is a liar and a lie. There's a liar and a lie. Look at verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Crafty is an interesting authorial choice by Moses. That's a, that's a fascinating word that he chooses to use to describe the serpent. It's a word of contrast. What we see is that 
God is benevolent, but this being described as the serpent is malevolent. He's here to deceive. He's a manipulator. Later on, later on, he's going to be described as the father of lies, as the deceiver, as the accuser, as the destroyer. And what we see is that God's authority that was exercised for their good in his benevolent care is going to be contrasted by the deceiver, by this crafty serpent who's going to use his twisted will to try to bring about destruction. Number two, what we see is that the lie he tells is rooted in questioning the nature of God's authority and mankind's submission. Authority and submission are crucial if we're going to understand what went wrong, who God is, and who we are. Look at how he calls into question God's authority. Verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? God had exercised his authority by speaking his word to Adam and Eve. And the serpent's approach to Adam and Eve is to call into question God's authority, to distort God's authority, to twist it into something it's not. And what he's going to do is distort God's authority, what God has said to them, in four really specific ways. Let me give them to you because they're still happening right now. Number one, he wants to twist God's authority by presenting it as more restrictive and burdensome than it really is. Look what happens. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the subtlety there. God gave them all kinds of trees in the garden. He told them to feast on all the trees. He gave them one tree that they weren't allowed to eat. But the serpent twists that. He flips it on its head to present God as withholding. To present God as laying burdensome commands on them. You're hungry and you're surrounded by fruit and you can't eat any of it. Life sucks. The truth is, the truth is, God had given them all the yeses in the world. He gave them one no. And God is not unreasonable. He wouldn't surround them with all the joys that they could imagine and then demand that they not enjoy them. But the enemy wants to present God as anti-pleasure, anti-joy, anti-delight, and anti-fullness. And I want you to notice the irony, because irony is at every turn in this passage. The irony is... The God of delights is now being defined as being anti-delight. The God who created sex and conversation and food and music and sunsets, the enemy is trying to point to that God who is the inventor of all pleasure, who's the headwaters of joy, and he wants to say, hey man, gosh, isn't he burdensome and restrictive? The second dynamic of the lie, number two, is he wants to show God's authority expressed in his word as not really applying to them. Not really applying to them. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. The serpent is saying maybe God was mistaken. <laughs> Maybe he's wrong about the consequence. Or maybe he didn't really mean it. Or maybe it doesn't apply to this situation or this time or to you. What he said won't happen. You will be different. You'll get away with it. You won't die. Things will be okay. He wants to present God's authoritative word as something that can be situationally questioned as not being reliable. 
Does that sound familiar? The third thing, he wants to present God's authority as limiting Adam and Eve's potential. Look at verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, notice the irony. They were already like God in all the ways that were appropriate and good as image bearers. And his authority is made to appear in this moment as restricting, limiting, small-minded, and insecure. God needs to keep you small to be big. God has to diminish you so that he can maintain his majesty and glory. God doesn't want you to fulfill your potential. God doesn't want you to be everything that you could be. If you keep God's rules, God's commands, it's going to restrict you. It's going to shrink you. It's going to remove the horizons from your life. This leads to the fourth thing. The enemy wants to communicate that the good life, the good life is found outside of submission to God's authority. Look what happens as Eve ingests the lie and it starts to be metabolized. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The lie is now taken root. God's authority is seen as burdensome. And breaking his authority is without consequence and is in fact essential if she and her husband are gonna maximize their potential and their joy. In essence, here's what we see at the very beginning, and this has been the script that's been playing throughout human history since then. It's that freedom isn't found under God's authority, but outside of it. That rebellion is emancipation, that disobedience is liberation. And I want you to hear me say this. This is really important because this story, the first three chapters of Genesis, the unpacking of creation, the rest of the Bible describes this moment to help us understand that Adam is this representative of the human race, but he's also reflective of the same lies and garbage that we believe. So he's standing in to represent us. And when he sins and falls, we fall with him. But he's also this mirror that God's holding up to us to show us how we believe the same lies, how we fall for the same deceit. And what I want you to get is that there's massive irony throughout this whole text. Let me just unpack it for you. First of all, in breaking free from God's authority, thinking that they're gonna be more free, they actually become slaves to the serpent. They move from the benevolent rule of God to the oppression of the enemy. They hand over their delegated authority to rule under God's authority. And the enemy is later going to be described as the lower G God of this world. What's happening? Well, like, they don't maximize freedom. They literally exchange being under the authority of God who loves them, God who has all power, God who is all-knowing, God who is good and wise, and they, can't, they hand the keys of creation over to a created being who's twisted and bent on their destruction. They don't find freedom, they find slavery. And not just slavery to Satan, but in breaking free from God's authority, they also fall in bondage to sin. Instead of finding their potential maximized, 
What was a free choice leads to the bondage of the human will to futility and evil. They use their agency in a way that removes their agency. They don't become bigger, they become smaller. Like Adam and Eve had all the choice in the world. They truly were free to choose. They could obey God or disobey God. That was part of the responsibility and the beauty that God gave them. That was part of the way that God created them to actually get to work with God, to extend his love and his beauty in creation. They weren't robots. They weren't automatons. But here's what happens when they rebel from God, instead of becoming more free, their will is bound to sin. And now what we see is that all human beings are free to choose what we want, but we only and continually want to disobey God. They lose their agency. It's an irony that in breaking free from God's authority, they didn't find more life, but the tyranny of death was introduced. Instead of more pleasure, every pleasure is diminished and all become fraught with danger. Like all the good gifts that God created for them to enjoy become really dangerous and tricky. Marriage gets mixed with power dynamics instead of communion. Sex gets mixed up with lust. Wine gets mixed up with drunkenness and addiction. Food gets mixed up with famine and overeating. Society, instead of being a collaborative structure to reflect the wonders of God becomes a collaborative structure that reflects the horrors of sin. And in attempting to be like God, here's, here's the crazy reality. In attempting to be like God, the very real image of God is vandalized in them. They don't cease to be image bearers, but the image of God gets marred, it gets twisted, it gets obscured, mud gets thrown on top of it. And the most tragic of all the ironies in this text today, the one that's the most shocking to me that I don't know if I've ever thought about to this week, is that they didn't actually break free from God's authority at all. <laughs> they just chose to not receive the gracious benefits and joys of his authority, but only its consequences and condemnations. Because God's still God and they're still, they're still his creatures God doesn't cease to be God. They just cease to enjoy the protection and shelter of his good grace. They choose to depart from the blessings of God. And I want you to just stop here and just think about those, those particular lies. Both as Christians and non-Christians, think about those lies. God's authority is more restrictive and burdensome than it really is. Like in what ways have we, have we ingested that idea that to obey God is to lead to a life that's really confined, that doesn't really have freedom, that keeps you from spreading out? We believe that. We believe that again and again. Or that God's authority expressed in his word doesn't really apply to you. How many times do we just play situational games with God's clear commands? It's like, well, yeah, but I'm different because of these reasons and I'm different because of my background and I'm different because of these feelings or I'm different because of these circumstances. We do that all the time. We do that all the time with forgiveness. Well, of course God commands us to forgive as we've been forgiven, but this person has really wronged me. They've really hurt me. They've really offended me. We do it all the time. Or think about the lie that God's authority is limiting our potential. Limiting our potential 
Man, we see this in business. We see this in politics. We see this in our sexuality that like to obey God is to actually shrink. It's to not, it's to not be everything we could be. If we just disobey, if we just cut corners, if we just play it fast and loose, we can be bigger, we can be better, we can be more. And the lie that the good life is found outside of submitting to God's authority, that like if we really say yes to God, if we really obey Jesus, if we really follow him on the narrow road, it's gonna lead to a life that's not worth living. Even though Jesus promised that he came, that we would have life and have it abundantly, we don't really believe that. We believe that the more we submit to him, the less we're going to taste of joy. And I just want to stop here for a second and just just name, and if you could be so bold as to take inventory of your own life, just name the irony of our own lives. In all of these places that we believe the lie, we don't find more freedom. We find bondage. We don't find more joy. We find more anxiety. The more we pursue freedom from God, the more we find slavery to ourselves. The less we say yes to God, and the more we say yes to ourselves, the more small and petty and sad we become. And I want to just pause here and just say, hey, the rest of the Bible is this amazing scandal of God's grace where he through his son is working to bring us back into the enjoyment of his good authority, which is for us. The whole rest of the Bible is about him trying to move towards us and make it possible for us to not stand under condemnation, but to stand under the blessing of a good father, to receive the fullness of his presence and his grace. And he's doing this in the Bible, not because he needs us, but because we need him and he loves us. It's not that God's pursuit of us in Jesus is God being like, oh man, I had like five minutes with humanity where they were mine and they obeyed and now they're not and I'm stressed. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. If he was hungry, he wouldn't tell us. But we need him because we were made, we were made to live under the shelter of his covering, under the gaze of his smiling face. And so Jesus in Christ comes as a better Adam, a new representative. And what Jesus does to bring us back into enjoyment of the Father's good authority is crazy. Let me give you just a few things and we'll pray. First of all, Jesus submitted to the Father's will. The first Adam said to God, not your will, but mine be done. And all human beings have been following his example ever since. Jesus in the garden in Matthew chapter 26 says to God, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus offers the Father the submission that we've refused to offer. Secondly, Jesus was substituted for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that he made for our sake him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In, in essence, here's what Jesus does. It's this crazy double move of substitution. Jesus bears the full penalty of our rebellion. And then by grace through faith in Jesus, he offers us the full benefit of his right standing with the Father. It's crazy. We get brought back into fellowship with the Father because Jesus bears our sin and our punishment and then he offers us freely the entire riches of his righteousness before 
his father so that we can be in good standing. And then Jesus, in the course of discipleship, and this is where we're going to take so much time in our groups thinking of what this looks like. Jesus then, in the course of discipleship, he invites us back into the enjoyment of the Father's good authority by following Jesus. The whole Christian life is this narrow road where we get to learn what it looks like to follow Christ. And in following Christ, we're submitting to the Father's yeses for our blessing and well-being and the Father's knows for our blessing and our well-being. And we all blow it a lot. Like, here's why we repent together every Sunday so that you can have tools to know how to repent during the week. At some point, probably before you go to bed tonight, you're going to push kick Jesus out of the throne of your life. (laughs) And so am I. There's going to be some desire that's twisted and disordered because of our sinfulness. And we're going to just like, like push kick Jesus. The Jesus we said is Lord. The Jesus we said is worth trusting and following. He's going he's gonna to conflict with some desire that we've got. Maybe for respect. Maybe for pleasure. Maybe for comfort. I don't know. And we're going to kick him out of the chair. And then the Holy Spirit is going to come along and say, Hey, hey, you believed the lie again. <laughs> And his authority is for your good, and you can trust him. Come back. And repentance is the process of saying, Jesus, you are Lord. So here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. The very earliest Christian confession is real simple, but it's real deep. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And as early Christians confessed that, that one simple line, what they were saying is that the fullness of God's authority is in Jesus. That Jesus is both God and man. He is King and Lord. And to follow Jesus is actually to come back into the enjoyment of God's good authority for our lives. Not to steal from us or diminish us or destroy us, but to build us, to change us, and to form us. Let's pray. I encourage you before we receive the Lord's Supper to just take a couple of minutes and examine yourself and talk to God. Where have you retracted the good confession Jesus is Lord this week? Jesus is Lord except for here in this circumstance. <laughs> or accept when he conflicts with my desire for revenge or public praise or control. Just take a second and, and just lean into that and confess it to him. Here's the thing, man, like we are simultaneously sinners and saints and that's kind of mind blowing, but it's so important meaning we still need to confess and repent and return to his good authority again and again. But we still have the entire treasure house of Jesus' righteousness that's ours. So the Father doesn't reject us. So stand in that tension as a sinner and a saint and come again to the Lord. And make your confession Jesus as Lord have the specificity it needs. Is he Lord over your marriage? Is he Lord over your parenting? Is he Lord over your body? 
Is he Lord over your checkbook? Is he Lord over the ethics that govern the way you're doing business? Is he Lord over the offenses and the wounds that have been dealt to you? Is he Lord over your singleness? Is he Lord over your marriage? Father, would you help us today to trust you, to look at Jesus and to behold the fullness of your benevolent authority in the cross and resurrection. That we can trust you, we can say yes to you, and even when the road is narrow and hard, you have demonstrated that you're for us and not against us and that you care about our good more than we do. So help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.